Our scripture lesson today comes from the songbook of the church, the Psalms. Let's share in God's good word together. Happy are those who make the Lord their trust, who do not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after false gods. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Simple sayings that are simply untrue. We're looking at five phrases in five weeks. We started last week, but let's just see how you're doing. Uh, When God closes a door, hold on, we'll get there. Ready? See if you know this one. I think you do. When God closes a door, he opens a? No, oven. Have you not lived here? (laughs) Come on, it's so stinking hot. So hot. No, you're right. It's an oven. I mean, no. It's, it's a window. It is. It's a window. You got it right. Uh, or you know this one. Uh, time heals all what? Yeah, you know these. You know Jesus didn't say that. It's not in the Bible. Uh, not even this one. God helps those who help. Yeah, nope. Also not in the Bible. Jesus didn't say it. But we have these in our culture, don't we? People just kind of have these things that they say. And if we're not careful, we can use one of these uh, little simple sayings and really wound people. I mean, if, if they're hurting, I mean, try, try telling that to somebody who just lost their job. I mean, that's just mean. Right? Oh, well, you know, just, you know, if you were following God, you, you wouldn't have lost your job. Well, no, that's not true. That's not true. So we, we come to these, um, this sermon series, it's just not true. Simple sayings that are simply untrue. And so um, t- last week we talked about that doubting is dangerous. Doubting is not dangerous. Sometimes doubting is really important. Now, you don't want to doubt everything in your life all the time. It's exhausting. You can't live that way. But to really think through things, that, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. So as a way of introduction, um, you know this. Sometimes we assign credit to Jesus for something he didn't say. He did not say. We, we see this all the time. Someone will take something from the Bible over here, over there, and then they'll say that Jesus said it. And this is what Jesus meant by that, even if it wasn't something that he said. And, uh, if we're honest, we get really uncomfortable when people question our beliefs. Something that we learned even in first, second, third grade. And then somebody tells us differently, and we're like, "Ah!" it feels feels dangerous to us almost. So when our beliefs are questioned, we can become defensive or offended, or combative, or withdrawn even. Like, I just, I just don't know how to talk to these people because they're not telling me the things that I know. It doesn't sound right to me. And, and if we're really, really going all the way through it, we may fear that if one of our beliefs turns out not to be true, then none of them are. Is that true? No, of course it's not. You could can, you can be right about this and absolutely wrong about that. Haven't y'all ever taken a math test? I mean, this one's right. That one's wrong. Right? It, it, that's the way the world works. So last week we asked, do you ever wrestle with doubt? Ever wrestle with doubt? I do. I do. Um, particularly when um, I see things that are unjust, uh, things that are unexplainable. And I'm like, Lord, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing? And sometimes when little ones in our church are hurting or sick and you know, doctors don't know what to do about it, I mean, I, I'm like, hmm. You know, I just, I don't, I don't know. Sometimes I don't even know how to pray. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, sometimes uh, people say, well, I re- Pastor Mark, I really, 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 really need you to pray that I get this job. I'm like, uh-uh. What if it's terrible for you? 
What if it blows up your family? What if it means you won't see your kids or you'll get divorced? I'm not praying for just whatever job. I'm praying that you have a full and blessed life. So, but it, it's hard. People are like, what do you mean you won't pray for me to get the job? Well, if it's good for you, then I hope you get it. If it's not good for you, I hope you don't. Isn't that what you would want for people? Right? So we have to be really careful that we're seeking God's will and not our own, or even somebody else that we love or care about. And everyone, including the disciples and even the most famous Christians, have doubts. I just do. Last week, uh, Chantel let me know that um, we did this, but I never told you who it was. Um, so here, here's, here's the thing. Um, this was published after this person's death. Um, they wrote, My God, I have no faith. I dare not utter the words and thoughts that crowd my heart, afraid to uncover them because of the blasphemy. If there be God, please forgive me. You hear the desperation there? If there be God. And when I try to raise my thoughts to heaven, there's such convicting emptiness that those very thoughts return like sharp knives and hurt my very soul. I am told God loves me. And yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great. Nothing touches my soul. Well, you would, doesn't sound like that person has much faith at all. But if you know her story, you know that she does. Mother Teresa had great faith and she was able to work in Calcutta with the poorest of the poor through her doubt, even with her doubt powerful and and so let me just say this if you've had doubts lately you're in good company i mean that's who i'd like to have company with right if there's a section with doubters i'm in her group i'm gonna go to her table right so so here's the thing doubt doesn't disqualify you from being blessed say that with me doubt doesn't disqualify you from being blessed it just doesn't and we have a couple of uh, ways of knowing this one is uh, by this man who brings his little boy um to jesus and he's being convulsed by a spirit. He falls on the ground. He rolls around. He foams at the mouth. It's a terrible situation. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often cast him into the fire and into the water. This was a really dangerous, terrible situation for this young man to destroy him. But if you are able to do anything, the father cries out, have pity on us, help us. And Jesus said to him, if you're able, all things can be done for the one who believes. Now, we can misread that if we're not careful. We take it out of context. Jesus is basically talking to his disciples, not to the man, because they were the ones that tried this earlier and couldn't do it. And so look what Jesus does. He doesn't chastise the man. He doesn't say, well, come back when you have more faith. What he does is he reaches out his hand and he heals the boy. Right? The scripture tells us immediately, the father child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. Say that with me. I believe, help my unbelief. What little belief we have, God will take it. He'll use it, change the world. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he was able to stand. Jesus met him right there. Jesus meets us in our doubts and in our needs. He knows our need, and he's willing to help. He's willing to help. And that's the beauty of Jesus. He knows our need even before we ask it, and he's ready to give us what we need and to bless us and to help us. So in in the story of post-resurrection, Jesus appears um, to the women they tell the disciples, the disciples don't believe them, so Jesus appears to the disciples and, and, and says, peace be with you. And they were afraid. They were locked in the house. And then Thomas wasn't there. Eight days later, Thomas is with them, right? Same deal. Locked up house. Jesus shows up again. Now, that's good news about Jesus, too, right? It's, it's not a one-time thing. He seeks you over and over and over again. Jesus is relentless in his love for you. And so he comes, he comes to the disciples and Thomas, and he says, Thomas, 
Put your finger here and see, see my hands? Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Say it with me. Do not doubt, but believe. And if you're not careful, you can pull that right out of context and be like, Jesus is getting on to him. When you hear somebody say, doubting Thomas, do you think of that as a high and lifted up thing? No. no. But that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's like, Thomas, I love you. You don't have to doubt any longer. And Thomas answers beautifully, correctly, my Lord and my God. Which you'll notice if you go back in the story, the other disciples didn't do. He actually gets it better than the first ones did. So when it comes to faith, it's not the absence of doubt. It's just not. Faith is actually moving forward with what God calls you to do in the midst of your doubts. And the great news for me and for you is that Jesus sends doubters to make disciples of all nations. Right? I mean, that, he's given it to the doubters. So in the very last bit of Matthew, right before the end, in Matthew 28, it says this. When the disciples saw Jesus, they worshipped him, say it with me, but some doubted. Man, I'm thankful for those three words. But some doubted. And Jesus sends them. And Jesus comes and says to him, oh, by the way, don't worry about it because it's not about you, it's about me anyway. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and because it's my power that goes with you. It's not about you. You can have doubts and still work for me, work with me, have me work through you. And she says, and teaching them to obey everything, all of it that I've commanded you. Why? Because I'm with you. Emmanuel, God with us to the end of the age. So that was last week. This week, right, I want to ask you uh, a question. Uh, maybe by a show of hands, if you're super brave, any of y'all want to be miserable? <laughs> right? I mean, I don't know anybody that says, you know, I really hope up, I, I, grow, I grow up today and be miserable, or I wake up today. Uh, raise your hand if your goal in life is to be unhappy. <laughs> Have you met anybody who just wants to be unhappy? Don't answer that loud. I know some of you are thinking, well, yeah, I do know. <laughs> right? And, and so here's the thing. If we're not careful, we'll think of happiness as the highest value. And it's just not true. Happiness isn't the highest value. Now, I want happiness for my kids. I want happiness... For Chantel, I want happiness for people I love and care about uh, for you. But I want more than that for you. I mean, if you think about what, what legacy do you want to, your family to leave, is it that they were happy? Or do you actually want them to be kind or merciful or loving or difference makers or gracious in hard times or uh, a peace when everybody else is losing their minds? Or a quiet strength when the world needs it. I mean, isn't there anything higher than happiness? And God says, yes, absolutely there is. And so we have this problem with what I'll call happiness theology. <clears throat> In happiness theology, if we're not careful, we will leave happiness at the top. And if we believe that God just wants me to be happy, then whatever makes me happy must be right. Is that true? Well, of course not. There's all kinds of things that might make you happy for a moment that would be devastating to you long-term. Or to others, your children, your marriage, your work. And, and on the other side of that, of course, then the other side is also true. If I believe that God just wants me to be happy, then whatever makes me unhappy must be wrong. I, I don't know, but I'm guessing the Garden of Gethsemane was not a lot of fun for Jesus as he was looking at the cross. But that wasn't wrong. It, it was exactly what he was called to do. He was being faithful. He wasn't messing up because he wasn't happy. And, and if we take this even further, and we see this all through our culture today, uh, you can turn on the TV and see it in religious 
situations and in self-help situations. It doesn't really matter. It's everywhere. It's everywhere, friends. And if I believe this, that any inconvenience, any suffering or difficulty in life cannot be a part of God's will. Have y'all ever had knee replacement or knee surgery or hip surgery or, or anybody have to do physical therapy? Well, well, if that's true, nobody's walking again. Because those first days after surgery, it hurts. And, and you'll say to your therapist, that hurts. They're like, I know. <laughs> it, it does. It hurts as we heal. But you've you got to do it. It's all about the rehab. And, and that's the way it is with life and so many things. Pain's just a part of our life. And when we try to escape it, we lose part of our life. We don't gain it. So happiness theology leads to the worship of the false idols of comfort and money and pleasure and things. Um, if you, want to, you could actually call these gods, idols or gods, other things that take our attention. And, and Reverend Paul Rasmussen at Highland Park, which was Chantel and I's home church when we lived there, he writes it like this. He says, if God really, above all else, just wanted us to be happy, doesn't that reduce God down to a cosmic Coke machine? Well, think about it. You know, you, you put in your quarters or you go to worship and you look and you're like, oh, Dr. Pepper, cool. It's 10 o'clock. Or, or maybe it's 2 o'clock or maybe it's 4 o'clock. I don't have any Dr. Pepper people in here. Come on. So you hit the button, nothing comes out. The Coke machine failed me. And that, that's right. I mean, you can be frustrated by that. But man, does that not work with God? When you say, I, I, I wrote my check to the church, or I went to Sunday school, or I went on a mission trip, and I didn't get my Dr. Pepper. Because I had in my mind an outcome that was going to happen, because I was going to trick God into doing what I wanted him to do. Or he owes me, because I put my religious quarters in. Well, that's a sure way to be unhappy, friends. If God's highest goal is for me to be happy, then clearly God exists to serve me. And if that's the case, then God's not God, you're God. Because whoever gets served in the situation is God of the story, right? I mean, because you have God, the, the master, and then you have the servants. And so you have to be careful who's on the throne, who's on the throne. Uh, about 13 years ago now, in 2010, uh, Kenda Creasy-Dean Creasy uh, wrote a book. And, and the book was describing religion in America, uh, particularly about teenagers, uh, not as Christian, but as, as what she calls moralistic therapeutic deism. And this belief system had little to do with God or even a divine mission in the world to make a difference. And so she's not beating up on teenagers at all. So if you were a teenager around 2010, she, she's not being mean to you. She's just saying, this is what I see. This is what the teenagers are teaching us. And what she found was that the teenagers were actually pretty religious. And they wanted to do what their parents had taught them. And what their parents had taught them was not Christianity. What their parents had taught them, what the church had taught them, was what she calls moralistic therapeutic deism. Which is do the right thing, feel good about it, and it'll be what it'll be. Because deism means God's hands off, right? If you study Thomas Jefferson... Right? It's not a close, intimate relationship with God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. It is where well, there is a God, and, and he might be benevolent, but he spins the world, lets it go. And so it boils down to this. Moralistic therapeutic deism, this is what the kids basically were projecting, showing what they'd learned. It offers comfort, 
That's it's not a bad thing. Bolster self-esteem. That sounds okay. Help solve problems. And it encourages people to do good. That, that's good. And to feel good. That's good too. And to keep God at arm's length. That doesn't work. That's not Christianity at all. That's not what we believe. That's not our aim. It's thrust as personal happiness and helping people treat each other nicely. It's nice to be nice. And it is. But our faith is much more than that. It's not much more than behavior modification. It's, It's much more than just being nice. Moralistic therapeutic deism makes no pretense at changing lives. Is there any wonder that, that people don't see the church working? Because if what we're really doing is moralistic therapeutic deism, try saying that fast three times, <laughs> then people are just not interested. They can get that at school or, or anywhere, really. Just be nice. It's good business and feel good about yourself and be nice to people. But that, that's, that's not what we do. It's low commitment, compartmentalized set of attitudes aimed at, say it with me, meeting my needs. And making me happy rather than bending my life into a pattern of love and obedience to God which is our call to serve him to bless him to praise him that's who we are to be now here's here's the brutality of this it's everywhere it's everywhere and 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 if I'm not careful we can fall into it too you know I, I might I might start preaching sermon series with a catchy tag title like it's just not true. <laughs> right? So, I mean, it's, it's a slippery deal. And if our highest calling is to be a happy, to be happy, that when we find ourselves unhappy, God must have failed us. We didn't get our Dr. Pepper, whatever that is in your life. Again, Reverend Paul says, I think this is truly one of the greatest theological problems of modern day spirituality. That people actually come to church for God to fix their problems. I mean, that is why a lot of folks come to church. And there's, it's not totally wrong. I'm not, I'm not saying that God wants to help you. God wants you to be happy. That is true. But that's not the end of it. So what is true is that we're commissioned to love God and to serve God and to serve others, to love God and others. That's what Jesus teaches us. It's very, very clear in the Gospels that the religious leaders of Jesus' time come and they say, Teacher, Jesus, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And Jesus says back to them something they knew very well. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Read this part with me. This is the greatest and first commandment. They would have known this as the Shema. Everybody grew up knowing that as a little kid. And then Jesus goes on and says, and the second is like it. Say it with me. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So around here you know that the law... Uh, the Torah is five books, and they are, same with me if you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. All of that is about loving God and loving others. All of the law, if you, if you read into it, teaches us how to bless God and how to live along with others and to bless other people. It's applying the principle of love in real life. They use it law, and, and that's what law is to do. It's to protect uh, the, the poor, the hungry, the powerless. That's what law is for. Because the powerful people can take care of themselves, right? That's why we call them powerful. And so the law is supposed to make it where we know how to serve God and serve others. Uh, So our founder, John Wesley, lived in the 1700s. His little brother, Charles, wrote a lot of hymns and a lot of poems. This is a children's poem that he wrote. Unite the pair so long disjoined knowledge, which is what we talked about last week, knowledge and doubt, 
and vital piety, holiness, which is what we're talking about this week, although I haven't used that term yet. Yeah, learning and holiness combined. Those have to go together. They have to go together. Holiness and the knowledge of what God wants. So we have to know what God wants, and then we, then we have to be able to step into it. Step into it. See, God doesn't want us to pursue happiness when it leads to do something unwise. Now, when I say unwise, I, I really mean sinful, which is it's unwise because it hurts you or it hurts others. But we don't, you don't know that on the front end all the time. All you know is that we have these sets of commandments that are covered blessings, by the way, that are for our good. And, and you know, I'm a slow learner. Uh, maybe some of you are too. I learned things the hard way. When I was um, going into my second grade year, we moved to Bartlesville, Oklahoma. So this would have been the 1970s. And at that time, before the first oil bust in the 80s, I mean, Bartlesville was a happening place. And, I mean, all kinds of really incredible things all over the world would show up there. Philip 66 was, you know, stationed there, of course. And it was just doing amazing things. Dad was an associate minister there. And there was a, a, came time for a pool party with the youth group. And in Bartlesville, there was a place called Frontier Pool. And at Frontier Pool, they had an Olympic-sized pool. They would actually have Olympic meets in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. Diving meets, they had a big diving well. Uh, they had the springboards, you know, uh, the high dive, the low dive, the three-meter. And then they had the platform here. You know, I'm told this is uh, 5 meters, 7.5 meters, and 10 meters. And so as a, as a little one, 9, 10 years of age, um, I was really mesmerized by the high schoolers in particular, particularly the high school girls and boys both. I was like, Wow. You're amazing. And, and, and high schoolers are. They are amazing. But, you know, as these things happen, a swimmer, my dad taught my sister and I to, to swim before we could even walk. And taught us to dive shortly after. And so they're like, hey, why don't you go up the platform? My sister's like, okay. She's about 26 months older than me. And so she's still a little kid. And then she jumps off the platform. She didn't die. So I was like, well, I'll do it then. So I, I go off the platform. And they're like, I bet you won't dive off of it. I'm like, sure, we'll dive. She dives, I dive. You can't do a flip. She does flip, I do a flip. And they're like, you know, like, wow. And they're like, well, I bet you won't go to the second high with one. And I said, you know. And then, you know how these stories go. Before I know it, before the end of the night, you know, sun is setting. They're about to close down everything. And all the kids are watching. And I'm on the 10 meter. That, that is more than three stories high. And if you go up there, uh, there's a really funny little YouTube video you can see afterwards uh, on, on NBC, and they're showing it. And you can't even see the pool. You're so high, you can't see the pool. What you see is the neighborhood behind it, which is hilarious. It looks like you're going to jump into somebody's roof. But anyway, I decided to go, you know what I found out about jumping off a 10-meter platform? You need instruction. Had I gotten instruction, I would have known that you need to keep your body very straight, and, and where nothing hits except for your feet, and you want to point your toes so that, you know, the least amount of whatever, how fast you're going hits, hits. So rather than jumping off, you know, as a little one and, and being trained, I jump off like, ah! Can you imagine hitting the water at that speed? My entire body turned red with a, a, a rash. It was like, I felt like I was getting stung with a thousand wasps all over my entire body. Now, that no longer felt cool. I mean, youth group's looking around like, is he okay? And, you know, I come up and I'm, I'm trying not to cry because it hurts so bad. But so I go back under the water like maybe they just think it's, you know, the water coming off me. 
But, I mean, it was rough, rough. And um, I don't know if this is true or not, but the way I remember it is, like, I, you know, kind of came to my mom, like, Mom, I told you not to. You know, like, <laughs> that's your consequence. There it is. So, so here, here's the lesson, at least for me. Sometimes what we think will bring happiness brings us pain. We never saw it coming. I don't know what your platform is. But sometimes the very things that we think, oh, that's going to be it. A lot of pain. And so Paul writes to the early church. There's all this freedom in Christ. There really is. And he says, all things are lawful. You can go off the 10 meter if you want to, but not all things are wise. They're not beneficial. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Don't seek your own advantage, but that of others. And so he's talking about food laws in this moment, but it applies here too. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do and everything, do it all for the glory of God. So if you're out to eat with somebody you know, who's diabetic and they don't have their insulin on them, don't order a big piece of chocolate cake in front of them. That's just mean. If you're going out with some friends and you know one of them's been struggling with alcohol, you don't drink. Not because you can't, but because you don't, you're doing that out of kindness and love for the other. Because it's love God, love other, isn't it? That's what Jesus says. And so it changes the way we live. That's called holiness. We don't live like the world. We live like Jesus calls us to for our betterment and the betterment of those around us. So maybe it's not alcohol for you. Here's the thing that I do see a lot in Edmund, and it's easy to struggle with. Sometimes we overspend trying to make someone happy or ourselves happy. You go out to dinner, and you're at a restaurant that you can't really afford uh, the other couple normally picks it up. Doesn't look like they're picking it up. So you're picking it up. It's way more than you thought. You pick it up. And they're happy. Till you get the bill from Visa the next month. And, and you and your spouse argue about it for the next three weeks. Because you don't know how you're going to pay it. How, how you're going to have to go pick up an extra job to, to get the money. Because you were already tapped at your budget. You knew what those limits were. And you, you did, overrode it anyway. Am I the only one that have these scenarios in our lives? Right. Now, now, to be fair, our oldest just t- turned 27 uh, up until we loved him. He loves to eat well. So we went uh, to a really nice restaurant and we, it was expensive. Uh, you know, not, not something that I would normally do, but it blessed him. I felt great about it. Still feel great about it. You know why? Because he doesn't live at home anymore. <laughs> and I took the money that I would have given him when he lived at home and spent it on his dinner. Yeah. So it's even up for me. So I'm not saying that you can't do nice things. Sure, you can. If it doesn't make unhappiness on the longer term. Does that make sense? Yeah, you have to know where you are. And so here's the thing. When we pursue happiness, we don't find it. But we, when we pursue holiness, happiness is a byproduct. It comes up and out. So God wants us to pursue holiness over happiness because it works. And it doesn't work the other way around. When we pursue happiness, you don't find holiness. But when you pursue holiness, happiness comes after. So in 1 Peter, it says this, Instead, as he, God, who called you is holy, be holy yourself. Set apart in all your conduct. Don't live like the world. Be different than the world. Be better than the world is. Right? So you can really have true joy. Holiness is the pathway to happiness, friends. And I know that's, that's not what people think. Like, holiness, like, that sounds like a drag. Like, you know, we've got to do this or this or this. No, no, no. All the things that God asks us to do is to release joy into our life. The most peaceful, joyful, wonderful people I know live close to the Lord. They're not trying to impress anybody. 
They're not trying to do outlandish things, trying to jump off a high dive so that somebody will think they're cool. They know who they are. We have a number of our college students heading out this week, and I, I just try to remind them, look, don't let some 20-year-old girl in Rush tell you who you are. Don't let some you know, 20-year-old boy tell you who you are. You know who you are. The Lord tells you who you are. You grew up here. You know that the Lord is big in you, loves you. You're okay. You're going to be okay. The psalmist says, trust in the Lord and do good. Do good because you can. And so you will live in the land and enjoy security. When you do good, you're not worried about all the decisions. Haven't you all ever made a bad decision? And the decision itself wasn't so bad. It was the next three weeks wondering what was going to happen. No, so don't, you don't have to put yourself through that. Take delight in the Lord. And he'll give you the desires of your heart. He will. You're not getting it for yourself. Right? It, it's, it's basic Sermon on the Mount. Seek first the kingdom of God. And happiness and everything else follows. That, that's what Jesus teaches us. Read this part with me. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. And he will act. God will act on your behalf. That's the good news in Jesus. That's the good news of the Red Sea. That's the good news throughout the Bible. That we give our lives to God and God cares for his children. And it is true, absolutely, that God delights in our happiness. He does. I love it when my family's happy. I love it when you're happy. It's, it's, there's, is there anything greater than, than watching a kid just, you know, hit a home run or, or make a goal or, or do something, you know, do a beautiful dance that they were scared about, didn't know they could do, and then they just, they just light up. It's beautiful. It's good. It's so good. But it's not our highest calling. To be with God is our highest calling. And he gives us a choice. Many of you all know that a few months ago, um, Chantel and I uh, decided to go get, um, well, we had presented to us these poodle pups. This is Noah, our youngest, and Gracie and Goose. Gracie's black, and uh, Goose is white with some uh, apricot spots. But anyway, we love them, and they're sweet as can be, but they're still puppies. They're um, about eight months old now, and um, just, they're, and they're growing. They're bigger than that already. And, and so, and, and Chantel loves them sometimes. Most of the time. They're so sweet. And they just want to be with you. Dogs are pack animals. They just want to be with you. They love you because they love you because they love you. It's a beautiful metaphor um, for the way we can love one another. Not because of what we've done, but just because of who we are to each other. But here's the thing about puppies. They're so good when they're with you and so not when they're not, when you're not. <laughs> right? They'll eat anything. And so we, we got a, this like heavy-duty leash because he, he's a big boy. This is uh, Goose's leash. But if you look closely, he's almost through it. Oh, wow. uh, he chews on it, and he chews this. I mean, it's all chewed up I mean, just over and over and over again. And so, I mean, this is a heavy-duty leash. I mean, that's, that's a big deal. Um, and one day we were, we were actually at night. We were walking, both of them. And, and all of a sudden, I was like, where's Goose? There's, there's no end of that leash because he just chewed right through it now here's the thing dogs and traffic don't go together right i don't have him on a leash to make him have a bad time i have him on a leash to save his life to keep him protected to keep him close to his master where the relationship is good and holy and wonderful and beautiful but, you know, I, I think of myself, sometimes, we call him Goose because he's a silly goose, and I, I wonder sometimes if, you know, I, just, I get tired of that pulling of, of the leash that the Lord has on me, and so I just chew on it. And if I'm not careful, I'm, I mean, God allows me to chew on through it. 
if I want to. And he allows you to chew on through it if you want to. But friend, that is, that is a dangerous place to be. God, the, the rules of God, the blessings of God, they're not meant to be a drag. They're meant to bless you for really true joy. And that's what holiness does. Holiness brings us into a joy that the Bible calls unspeakable. When we invite God to keep us on a short lease and keep us next to him, the sort of joy that's unleashed in your life is beautiful. The, the, the writers in the scripture say, you show me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy, much greater than happiness. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Although you have not seen him, God, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice. And read it with me. An indescribable and glorious joy. For you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So at the end of the day, friends, when you boil all this down, happiness, it's not about a what. It's about a who. It's about the Lord, about your relationship with him. That's where the happiness flows out of. The psalmist says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is what? Good. He's good. Happy are those who take refuge in him. Happy, happy, happy when we're with the Lord closely. So your action steps, super easy this week. Pursue a relationship with God more than the gifts he can give you. Really. I remember the first time I came across this concept and I thought, do you know what God can do? He can do anything. How am I supposed to love him more than what he can do? Well, think of it like this. Say it a different way. We're invited to love the giver more than the gift. Have any of you all ever been in a relationship where maybe when you were younger, you were dating someone, the moment you realized that they didn't really love you, they just loved what you did for them? Man, that's a painful day. Nobody should stay in that relationship, right? You have to love the giver more than the gift. Because it's the worst thing in the world when that's not the case. Just to use someone even if it's the Lord. So it's, you know, I'm just kind of throwing that warning out there. We don't want to, that's just gross. Nobody wants to do that. And it's not who we are. So I'm going to close with an old preacher story. You may have heard this. But how many of you all went to the beach this year? Any of y'all go to a beach of any kind throughout the year? Yeah, we're beach people. I mean, we love the beach. And sometimes when you're on the beach, you're, you're walking along and you'll find a fish that, that's on the beach. It's not dead yet. It's not super stinky. It's just flopping around. And it's not happy right? And his gills are working overtime, it's jumping around all over the place, trying to get back to the water. Now, let's, let's put the fish in Edmond, Oklahoma. And we see this. What do we do? We think, oh, you know what will help him? We're going to give him a million bucks. We're going to give him a million dollars. Do you think the fish is going to be happier? No. no. It still needs water to live. What about, oh, I know, he's at the beach. We're giving him a corona. <laughs> that, that'll help him out. No. Not for long. Or a lawn chair and kick back? Or a picture of his favorite female fish? Is that going to help him? No, of course not. Whatever you give the fish on the beach, it's still not going to happen. It's not going to satisfy. Why? Fish were not created for the beach. I'm created for the beach. No. No, no, no. There's nothing that will satisfy the, the, that fish on the beach. Because fish are created to live in and through the water. You and I, we're not created to live here. We're created to live in and through God. Earth is not yet heaven, that's true. And no money, no pleasure, no thing will satisfy. We are made for God. And when we live and move in Him, when we rest and trust in Him, we will be more happy than ever. Because we're not made for here, we're made 
to live with Jesus forever. So God, he doesn't just want you to be happy. God wants you to be with him. Amen? That's the good news, that Christ has come for you to be with him. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.